Lord, we pray now that as we open your word, it would not be mere human voices that we hear, but your voice, still and small, speaking to us and calling us to stand on your promises and showing us through your power and wisdom how you want us to do that this very week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take your seats. Um, If you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking on that passage Joanna just read. Uh, So do turn back to Exodus chapter 4. And uh, as my wife turned to me when we got to verse 24 and said, good luck with that. Now Moses is one of the best known characters in the whole Bible. Most people have heard of Moses in the world. And this story of the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt is one of the most famous. Hollywood has found this story worth telling more than once. We should have a picture coming up on screen now. Older members will remember Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments in the 1950s. There he is. Powerful, massive beard. That's what I'm aiming for. That's Charlton Heston. And then some others, maybe millennials will remember this. Next cartoon from DreamWorks, The Prince of Egypt. And there's the younger Moses with Pharaoh in the background. And then more recently, Ridley Scott, the director of Gladiator, has turned his hand to it, and this is Exodus, Gods and Kings. It's on Amazon Prime at the moment. I can't, I can't vouch for its historical trustworthiness. There is a plague of crocodiles, interestingly, that isn't in the Bible. But there's Christian Bale, Batman turned to Moses. Uh, one critic described it as a numbing and soulless spectacle of 3D imagery run amok. Ridley Scott's Exodus, Gods and Kings presents an enduring tale by pummeling us over the head with it. You've got to be your own judge of these things. But notice how these images all conjure up strength and courage and heroism. And with this in mind, we, by chapter 4, might be expecting Moses would be striding boldly into Pharaoh's palace, singing, Let my people go! Wouldn't we? But no. Instead, we meet him still out in the wilderness. Two whole chapters are devoted to mostly a conversation with the Lord. And we find that Moses is basically finding reasons why he can't answer the call. We've had some of this before. In chapter 3, God appeared to Moses as an angel, the angel of the Lord, in the midst of a bush that burned with fire but didn't burn out. God said he had seen the plight of his people and he was resolved to do something about it. So Moses surely was thinking, good news so far. And then he heard some words that would make his heart sink. Chapter 3, verse 10. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Go. Walk out the door. Don't turn around now. You're not welcome anymore. Go to, and he's just thinking, whoa, ho, ho, ho. You know, someone's got to save them. So he began with two queries, chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I? And the answer was, who I am. God isn't really interested in your qualifications. He's interested in telling you he's the one who can do it. And so Moses came up with his second response. Well, verse, chapter 3, verse 13, what am I going to tell them? Will they listen to me? Will they really believe me? And God responded to that issue magnificently. He gave Moses his personal name. Had a great conversation with someone in the well earlier this week. Why does God have so many names? The answer is God has many titles, but only one name. 
So one of his titles is God, the Lord. But he has only one personal name, which is Yahweh, and it means I am who I am. I will be what I will be. The living God, he draws his being from no external source. Just think about everything else in all creation. Every creature is made what they are made to be, and creatures grow to be what they weren't before. You're not what you were 30 years ago. Creatures are now what they will not be at some point in the future. We will decline and fade and cease. But he is what he is, and he always will be what he will be, and he always has been, and he alone. That is his name, Yahweh. Alexander McLaren, a great preacher from a former time, said, Lifted above time and change, self-existing and self-determined, he is the fountain of life, the same forever. This underived, independent, immutable being is a person who can speak to men and women and can say, I am. The burning bush itself is a visual illustration of that name. God exists and he doesn't burn out. And he is burningly holy. And yet he wants to be here and near to us. So does Moses in chapter 3 have enough to go on? Here in chapter 4 we find him making further protests. And you can't avoid the impression he's trying to wriggle out of the job in the most polite way. In fact, by the time he reaches his fifth objection, it is clear that he's very reluctant to take up this challenge. Remember, he has failed in the past. And that was when he was a younger man. He tried it on his own. He was a freedom fighter at the peak of his powers. He ended up running for his life and has been hiding in exile ever since. And now he's older, feels weaker. He's basically an Arab shepherd. He's no longer familiar with the palaces of Egypt. It would hardly be surprising if he'd lost his fight, would it? Now, what is really going on here in this story? How does it apply to our lives? The root of all this is trust. Can Moses trust the Lord when he calls? Can you? When God comes down into your life and he moves the furniture around, God always calls you to serve him in some way or other. The word worship means serve. And he calls all of us like that. And you may find yourself feeling unprepared. You may find yourself feeling out of your depth or scared or insecure. You know your own weaknesses, don't you? You know your limitations. You know your past failure. And you may fear what God's call is going to mean for you. What could the repercussions be for your life, for your comfort, for your career, for your finances, for your relationships? If you follow when he calls, can you trust the Lord? Now, we are really getting into an important subject here, and I want to spend some time on it this morning. It's the subject of doubt. And we need to spend some time on doubt because we don't talk about it enough in church. And a huge point that's going to emerge from this passage is that although Moses is full of doubts, the Lord deals with him very tenderly and graciously. 
There is, this is not a command and control situation where God just barks at him and tells him to stop it and get on with it. The Lord works with him. is a relationship. There's a dialogue. The Lord provides for him again and again. So I only have two points today. And the first one is the darkness of doubt. The darkness of doubt. Notice the areas of Moses' doubt. Have a look at chapter 4 if you've um, to close your Bible at page 60. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? And this is a problem of credibility. I don't feel credible for this, and I don't think they're going to think I'm credible. But what if? And the second doubt that Moses has is about his capability. Have a look further on in the passage, verse 10. Moses then said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. This is a doubt about his capability. I just don't have the words for it. And these two are his third and fourth objections. Firstly, there's a doubt about his credibility. What if they don't believe me? And God then graciously gives him not one, not two, but three supernatural signs with which he can persuade and convince the people so that everyone will know this guy came from God. The first of them is to take his shepherd's staff, which is his trusty practical tool that's used every day as a shepherd and to throw it on the ground and it will become a snake and when he does it this shows you how much Moses is expecting it to happen he throws it on the ground and it literally does and he actually instinctively runs away as all of us would if you've ever seen a snake we don't see many snakes in this country but my wife and I living in Boston in the States a number of years ago were driving along and you did see snakes in Massachusetts and there was a snake that someone had run over in the road. So it was half squashed and the rest of it was just lying there. And we were like, ooh, look at that. And as we, literally as we drove over the come to the snake, it reared up kind of with the living end. And it sort of went, and we both went, ah! <laughs> Even though we were inside the car. Imagine your, your walking stick just changed to a snake. Whoa. But then God says to him, Pick it up by the tail. That's not the place I want to pick a snake up. Never mind, I'd be over there, nowhere near the snake. But Moses trusts God enough, and he picks it up, and as soon as he does it, it goes back to wood. Now, this is, this is the only way you could explain this, is the power of the living God. This is no human agency. That's the first sign. And then God gives him a second sign. He says, put your hand inside your cloak. Put it by your chest. And when he reaches the hand out, it's, it's white and, uh, with skin disease. Uh, historically, people have understood it as leprosy, but it's more likely some other kind of skin disease that makes the skin deadly white. And Moses has probably got a pretty good tan. He's been working on it in the desert all those years, and it is shocking, the deathly color of, of a skin disease. And God says, put it back in, and the hand is restored. Now, in the Bible and in the world of that time, God and the gods were seen to be particularly powerful in the realm of disease and healing. And disease was often seen as a sign of God's judgment. So to be able to curse with disease and then heal is surely only the prerogative of the living God. But if those two signs weren't enough, the Lord says, if they don't believe and pay attention to that, then 
listen, here's the, here's the third one, and this one he didn't actually need to use, but it became the first sign of judgment, was to take some of the water from the river Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and there in front of them it would become blood. God gives signs. God reached out to him, gave him more than enough to do the mission. Now, do you struggle with doubts about yourself? You feel so inadequate. You never feel good enough. You feel mediocre. You wonder if you're just an imposter. God, you know, has called you. He's brought you into his kingdom. God actually knows you better than you know yourself. And he's calling you to serve him in your life, not somebody else's. He's not calling you to be someone else. He knows you. He loves you. He's called you to be yourself with all your fears and all your foibles. And maybe God is calling you to serve him in some specific way right now. And you're aware of it. And you're, you're wobbling. Or maybe God is preparing you right now for some works of service in the future. What is he speaking to you about that at this very moment? Can you trust him when he calls? We notice the Lord's great tenderness to Moses, his reassurance. He doesn't just slap him and say, get on with it. He equips him with the resources that Moses needs to do the, the job that are actually well beyond Moses' natural ability. He gives him supernatural signs, evidences of God's power and presence. The staff of Moses, which is a standard item for shepherds and kings and others, now becomes a channel for power of the living God. And those three signs are going to feature in the story to come. Snakes, skin disease, and the Nile turned to blood. These are the kinds of things that God is going to use to demonstrate to the whole world that he is the ruler, the sovereign, the one over all creation, and his rightful rule over humankind. But this still isn't enough for Moses, and he raises his fourth objection there in verse 10, that he's never been eloquent Neither in the past nor since you've spoken, I'm slow of speech and tongue. Now, he's raising the question of his capability here. I just don't have the ability for it, Lord. And we don't really know what he's talking about. Many people have assumed that Moses had some kind of speech impediment. But the problem with that view is that Moses goes on in the rest of the story to demonstrate an amazing ability to speak powerfully and eloquently. He's helped by his brother at first, but soon he takes off. Other people have suggested that he's really talking about a lack of confidence in the Egyptian language. He's been away from the, the place for so long, and that's possible, but it's speculative. But what is clear is that Moses lacks confidence for the task that is in front of him. Imagine an aging shepherd going into the court of the most powerful king in the world and demanding that this king gives up his slave workforce. And this pharaoh is not an elected democratic official. He is an absolute dictator. This is a mission that would make anyone tremble 
who wasn't completely insane? Is it any wonder that he balks at the idea of speaking to Pharaoh? He thinks, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do that. And notice again, God gives him reassurance. Verse 11, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Wow. There's reassurance. Let's think about ourselves for a moment again. Perhaps God is calling you to speak for him or calling you to some aspect of service. It could be a ministry within the church. It could be an opportunity in the workplace. It could be a new sphere of responsibility in your life. God is calling you to serve him in some new way. It could be the next chapter. It could be what you're going to do in retirement years. Will it just be retire or will it be worship? And you sense that this new thing could be a fruitful place to serve King Jesus. But you've got such great doubts about your ability to do it. Why me? Please, you know, I can't do this. In your heart, you'd rather back away. Just step back quietly and see if someone else will take it up. Friends, can you trust the Lord in this season? Let's look at what the Lord said to Moses. I will help you. I will help you speak. I'll teach you what to say. You can do it, not in your own strength, but in mine. So there's doubts about credibility. There's doubts about capability. And then there are lots of other kinds of doubts. Os Guinness is a British thinker who worked in America for many years at something called the Trinity Forum. And his work was to help business leaders and political leaders and others to relate contemporary issues to their Christian faith. He wrote a book called God in the Dark, How to Understand and Resolve the Dilemmas of Doubt. And I heartily recommend this book to you. Guinness identifies lots of different ways that Christians doubt, and he explores them in seven, seven chapters. There's doubt that comes from just being ungrateful. There's doubt that comes from us having a faulty view of God. There are doubts that come from weak foundations. There are doubts that come from unruly emotions. There are doubts that come from old wounds in your life, hidden conflict from your past. There's doubt that comes from a lack of commitment. There's doubt that comes from just not growing enough. There's doubt that comes from inquisitiveness or impatience. But the first chapter in the book is entitled, I Am, Therefore I Doubt. I am, therefore I doubt. He writes that the world of Christian faith is not a fairy tale, make-believe world, question-free and problem-proof, but a world where doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. Doubt is never far from faith's shoulder, and we need to be open and honest and affirming of that reality. Faith is not doubt-free, friends, but you can have a genuine reassurance of faith. We need to understand our doubts, not run away from them. A healthy understanding of doubt will protect us and safeguard against our faith collapsing 
A healthy understanding of our doubt will help to prepare us for times for testing in the future, which will come to us all. But the biggest problem with doubt is this. Many Christians believe that doubt is wrong. And they, feel, they think they should feel guilty about it. And that's the biggest problem. What is most damaging, writes Guinness, is not that Christians doubt, but that there seems to be so little honesty about doubt and so little understanding of how to resolve it. This must be changed. So if this sermon does one thing today, I would be really encouraged if it encourages some people to speak about their doubts with their brothers and sisters openly. Because we, ultimately we don't believe in a bunch of ideas. We believe in a person. The key to our faith is that we're trusting a person. We either trust or don't trust the Lord. Can you trust him? But if you believe, it is natural to doubt. It's what you do with your doubts that's the issue. Your doubt is an opportunity, friend, to go deeper in your faith. Your doubt is an opportunity to strengthen the bonds of this community of believers. Your doubt is an opportunity to grow in your relationship with God. That is the potential. But here's what often happens with our doubts. Guinness writes that when once he was traveling in southern Europe and he witnessed the proverbial sight of a peasant beating his donkey. The peasant was walking behind, driving the donkey on, and huge bales of firewood were strapped to its back. But the donkey forced its way up a steep little path that served as the village street. Gradually, it slowed down, exhausted. Spurred on again by a stream of oaths, it staggered a few paces further and sank to the ground defeated and lay there panting in the relentless sun. It was then that the peasant beat it and beat it and beat it. Many Christians treat faith like that. Believe this. Stop doubting. Believe more firmly. Warnings are piled onto faith's back until it can take no more. Cajolings then give way to threats and threats to the big stick until undernourished and overloaded, their faith sinks to the ground and expires. Friends, Let's acknowledge the darkness of doubt and share it with each other and grow together and walk in the light. How are you doing with your doubts? Can you trust the Lord? Now, doubt isn't wrong even of itself. It's natural. We all experience it. And as I've just said, it's an opportunity for growth. But, second point and more briefly, there there can come a point where we cross a line. And that's when doubt can lead us to disobedience. And these things are very different. They're separate. We've got to make sure we understand the distinction. Doubt is natural. It's part of the life of faith. I am, therefore I doubt. But disobedience, disobeying God, is dangerous to your soul's health. And so my second and last point is the danger of disobedience. Because we come to Moses' fifth and final objection where he crosses the line. Look at verse 13. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Okay, now we've, got, now we've got underneath all the polite objections to the real heart, which is this. Ask someone else. I just don't want to do it. And notice here we've gone beyond doubting to straightforward disobedience 
And the Lord has been so patient. But in verse 14, he has a different reaction. And it's understandable. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? God has been so patient. And now he's angry. But even here, he offers Moses more help. And the Lord knows that Aaron is on his way to visit his brother. He's coming out of Egypt to see him. And he says, I will provide you with your brother, who's three years older, and he will walk alongside you in Pharaoh's palace. And there'll be a partnership. There'll be a team. And at first, Aaron will be the one doing the talking. A strong aid, an ally by his side in in the, the vulnerable place. So Moses, hearing this, says he will go, finally. In verse 18, he goes back to his father-in-law and he plans to relocate the entire family. At last, you see, we can get on with the job of rescuing the Israelites. But there is one more act of disobedience and it is very strange to our eyes, but it is deadly serious in the sight of God. So again, look at your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 4. Verse 24, and what we find here is that Moses and his wife have not circumcised their son. I'll just read that section again. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. What is going on here? So a bit of background. Back in Genesis chapter 17, when God made his binding covenant with Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation and the hope of the world, God gave them a sign that was to be put on on the body of every male child, every male in that that, uh, nation, from that time on and still down to this very day. And it's the sign of circumcision, the removal of the foreskin on an infant boy. If you had the sign, you were in the people of God. If you didn't, you were out of the people of God. It was as fundamental as that. It's not rocket science. Circumcision was a sign that you would join the people of God if you were a man or a boy. So disobedience on that matter meant you were out of God's people. And what seems to have happened here is that Moses, for whatever reason, has not circumcised his son, Gershom, his firstborn. And so God meets them. Now, there's there's a difficulty in the language here. I'm going to just, if you look back at verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and was about to kill him. And the him, what we have translated as Moses, is actually the word him. We've even got it in our footnote there in the church Bible. You see the little footnote, 24b. It actually says him. And it's probably more likely that the Lord is going to execute the son, not Moses. That the firstborn son will be executed because of this disobedience. It's that serious. And once again in Exodus, a woman saves the day. So Moses' wife, Zipporah, takes a flint knife, the traditional implement and she cuts off the foreskin and touches someone's feet with it and says surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me now the details of this are obscure but this is an echo of what's going to come later in exodus where there's a threat to the firstborn and the only way to be safe is to be protected by the blood 
We're going to see that later on. The Israelite firstborn are saved because they hide, they take shelter under the blood spread on the lintels and the doorposts. And here we have a little anticipation of that with the blood being touched and protecting the firstborn from the angel of God. What, what is going on here? Disobedience. I just want to put this in some kind of contemporary way. Two or th- two years ago or, or thereabouts, um, uh, my wife and I were approached by the leadership of this church to consider moving here and taking, me taking up the role of being a senior pastor. And we started with conversations and then we led to interviews and then we came and visited and then I preached and then the church members voted. It's a whole process. And during that process, the leaders made out very clearly to me what was expected of a senior pastor in a church like this. And they gave me written documents about the values and the vision and the beliefs of this church. And they gave me a contract to sign which explained what was expected of a senior pastor. Okay, Now, I just want you to imagine that I'd said, okay, I'm going to hear this call, I'm going to come. And then between leaving Manchester and coming here, you discovered that I had ditched my wife and children and brought along a new girlfriend. And that we moved into the new house in Somerset Avenue, not with Melissa and the kids, but with my living girlfriend. And I said... I'm still going to do the job for you. What would you say? <laughs> How did you? He knew the answer. I would not have been allowed to preach one sermon here on a Sunday because that level of disobedience in my promises to my wife and children is utterly disqualifying for a senior pastor of a church. No question. Anybody would see that. And that's what's going on here. There is absolutely no way that Moses is going to come and lead the Israelites. And the one thing that demonstrates that they are God's people is that their male children are circumcised. And he hasn't even done it. It's just no way. It's terrible disobedience. We don't know why. Is he headstrong, foolish, scared? We have no idea. And it's only Zipporah's action that protects Death from visiting the family. Now, there are things in our lives that lead us not just to doubt, but to be disobedient. What about you, brothers and sisters? Has your doubt crossed the line into actual deliberate disobedience of God? When it comes down to it, you know, trust and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Why do you lie? You lie because you're afraid of the consequences of telling the truth. Why are you afraid of telling the, con- why are you afraid of telling the truth and those consequences? Because you don't trust that God will really look after you if you tell the truth. I was talking to a man yesterday who runs a business here, gardening business, and every one of his contemporaries who don't know the Lord would run their own home projects through the business and call that work and thereby avoid lots of tax. He said, I I can't do that. So he is worse off as a result. But he's confident to do it because he believes the Lord will provide for him financially. Why do we steal? Cheat the tax man? Because we don't trust God enough to tell the truth. Why do you lust? 
Why do you have inordinate desires for some things or people that are beyond healthy? Has doubt crossed the line? And one of the biggest areas of this in our culture is the whole area of sexuality. It seems absolutely insane to most people in our culture that sex should only be reserved for one kind of relationship, which is a man and a woman bounded together for life until death do us part. And that sexual activity outside of that is against God's declared intention and therefore sinful. It seems absolutely insane to most people that that should be the case. And so, as a Christian, if you are not in that kind of relationship, or if you are in such a marriage relationship but the sexual side isn't functioning intimately, you are tempted to doubt and you'll doubt to go into disobedience in certain ways through addiction, through solo sex, through infidelity, whatever it may be, because you don't fundamentally trust God to look after that aspect of your life. Can you trust the Lord? And the answer is, you really can. And the proof of his reliability is not in your own strength of will and obedience. The proof of God's trustworthiness is the one who was given the most dreadful task in history, and he followed it through to the end. His name was Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus heard the call of God, and he knew he was going to the cross, and Jesus was so distressed that his face, the blood vessels in his face burst, and sweat like drops of blood fell from his face, and he said, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Even so, not, your will, not my will, but your will be done. And he was obedient to the task. He endured Gethsemane and went to the cross. On the cross, he was forsaken by God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was obedient to the end. And in light of Jesus' obedience to his call, his faithful service, we now know that God is absolutely, irrevocably, unshakably committed to us. If he did that for you, won't he do everything else? Let's pray. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we pray now that you would renew that sense in our hearts of your love for us. And therefore, prepare us to heed your loving call to service to be open and honest about our doubts and struggles with our brothers and sisters. 
and to take courage from them and from you that you love us and will never let us go. Amen. We're going to sing at least one old song called Trust and Obey, which turns some of those thoughts into musical worship. So when the musicians begin, let's stand and sing.